Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Pro and Dialogue. My name is Danny Servick, and in this week's episode, we catch up with my uh, my dear friend, Michael Curry, uh, and for the man that was probably the most uh, influential uh, in my path uh, on the professional level uh, in all the years of, of working with, with players and uh, with teams. Uh, and someone that I have been fortunate enough to learn so much from uh, in basketball, but in life, um, and, and through all those years, have just developed a uh, tremendous friendship, um, and just continue to learn from him on a daily basis. And just a uh, a, a great visit with him. You know, obviously, uh, most people know of him from from his 15 year professional career, which started. Uh, his first four years uh, in Europe, where we played in Germany and Belgium, Italy, Spain, France, mixed through some some minor leagues. Uh, talk some great little stories about that. How his first first job in Germany was for for less money than his uh, job that he had coming out of Georgia Southern in the, in the business world. Um, but we we also spend a lot of time uh, talking about his his two years working with David Stern, obviously with the. Uh, the uh, unfortunate passing of, of Commissioner Stern here uh, a few weeks ago really gets some uh, some good stories and, and, and just reflection from from Mike about his time and what he learned from uh, from the commissioner. Uh, mixing a little bit of his uh, time when he was president of the NBA Player Association. Um, ironically enough, we didn't really talk a whole lot about uh, another great uh, uh, part of his of his uh, journey. His coaching career, coached six years in the NBA, both as a head coach and as assistant, both of which have teams that uh, went to playoffs, uh, and then also his time as head coach on the collegiate level. Uh, he's someone, as, as people that know me and have heard me talk about him uh, with great admiration, is someone that I, I, I would put up against anybody that really knows every layer of basketball from someone that's walked the walk in the minor leagues uh, to playing at the NBA level to... Uh, being president of the NBA Player Association, to then working for the league office, um, to then also coaching in the league, to then coaching in college, and uh, it's he's he's a remarkable listen. Uh, we probably could have done about three hours straight and still not gotten to all the stuff that I wanted to get to, but for now we will take uh, take the hour and uh, let you kind of dive through and and let him talk about all of his many things. Uh, that helped make him become a great player and then later in life. So uh, grab your cup of coffee, grab your beverage, whatever uh, whatever you desire. Uh, grab out the notepad and uh, sit back and listen to the words of Michael Curry. As we've talked about in, in some of the early episodes, there uh, there was kind of like two two main people in kind of my arc of on my professional level in professional basketball, and um, the first was was Tony Ronzoni, and from him uh, I was able to meet uh, the guest this week who has been kind of my most influential uh, professional mind which then evolved into friend, which then evolved to who we probably talk more basketball in sports than anybody. Um, the great Michael Curry MC. How are you doing? My friend? I'm doing good. How are you doing today? I am. Well, I, I was joking with, um, some friends of mine that you were going to be on this week. And I told him that maybe my goal was, despite having guys like Rod Strickland and William Avery and some great coaches, that my 16-year-old son has still not listened to an uh, episode 
of the podcast. And I thought if there was ever somebody that he would tune in, it would be essentially his unofficial godfather. So if he doesn't listen to you, then Sam <laughs> may have serious issues. Um, but no, in, in, like in all seriousness, like this is, um, this has been a fun project that we, that we started off, uh, last fall and have kind of been waiting for the right time to bring you in because there would be no pro one dialogue if there wasn't a pro one sports, which would not have been launched and occurred if it wasn't for your, uh, initial subtle, uh, nudging to then kind of banging my over the head with a hammer to, to jump into it. And, uh, I have been, uh, selfishly, uh, um, fortunate to kind of know your whole story and, uh, your, your growth through the spore and trajectory. And I've joked with, with folks that I, I don't know if there's another person on the, uh, the professional level. And for that matter, with collegiate that knows every level of basketball better than you. And so I just thought now it was a great time with, with the pro season coming up around the all-star break soon in college season. We started conference play and with all things to finally kind of have you on and just, um, and then visit, so just to kind of give the Cliff Notes version, um, just talk a little bit about your journey uh, of how you kind of fell in love with the sport and then to your days with Georgia Southern and then and then beyond. And we can kind of dive into your pro career after that, obviously. You know, you know, my journey, uh, you know, into basketball, you know, I kind of, uh, for a lot of young men and young women, uh, I got started later in competitive sports and so my first you know sort of dive in and I was you know sixth grade and you know began to play recreation basketball but you know basketball really for me took off you know between my you know 11th and 12th grade year really of high school and I, and I we were joking the other day I actually got a DNP on a game in 11th grade <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> and so um you know, we were a really good high school team, and I, and I think part of my journey that that really helped uh, me reach a lot of high levels was that I had really good teams and teammates uh, that I was a part of, uh, and so everything was always centered around winning. And so, you know, we won in high school, and then, you know, my senior year, we went to the state Final Four, um, ended up going to Georgia Southern, where... Uh, two local guys, you know, Jeff Sanders and uh, Michael Stokes, um, you know, were, you know, playing and starting for Georgia Southern team and went there and had, you know, great success, you know, for uh, for a four-year span, you know, won more games than anybody have ever won in a four-year span. Uh, went to one NCAA tournament, two NIT tournaments, and, um won the regular season a couple of years. Um, Jeff Sanders ended up being the 20th pick my junior year, uh, 20th pick by the Bulls. And so played three years with him and two years with Michael Stokes and, um, you know, some other really good uh, teammates. Uh, and so during that journey, because everything was about winning, you know, you did whatever you had to do to win. You never thought um, about yourself as much. And, you never put um, anything else into the equation other than what I need to do to stay on the court, what I need to do to win, uh, because that's what everybody was judging you on. Um, because of that, uh, I got better. Uh, I got better individually uh, and had a chance to uh, go to uh, play some pro basketball, you know, in Germany my first year. And, and literally, you know, we – talked about it for years you know my first job uh was for thirty thousand dollars in germany and i had a job offer for thirty six thousand at jefferson pilot uh, <laughs> and so but uh, you know coming out of school thirty thousand still have a chance to play uh basketball and it was over a 10-month period you know i i was like this is great you know i was getting three thousand a month and uh, um home and a, a car so it, it was great you know but just playing basketball I didn't know how long that journey would go uh, but uh, the essence of 
what what I learned over time, the essence of pro basketball is really about, you know, are you disciplined enough to do something every day? And are you disciplined enough to do it when everybody is not watching or making you do it? And how much do you really want to compete? Uh, and for me, those things were were easy. That was the easiest thing. So because I was disciplined enough to do it, uh, I started getting better skill-wise. Uh, because I was a competitor, um, it just began to magnify itself as I became better skilled. Uh, the competitor in me wanted to be on the court all the time. And so, you know, my career was, you know, Germany, Belgium, um, the Global Basketball League. Then I went to uh, 76ers for the beginning of the year, you know, maybe 20 games. Uh, and then when I was released from there, I went to Italy, uh, came back the year after that and did a year in Spain. Um after Spain, uh, you know, really felt that I was an NBA player at, at that time and came back, uh, performed well in the off season. But it was a, a lockout that year in 95. And I ended up having to go back to Europe and go to uh, France. Um, we had a couple of major injuries on our team in France. And we got to the November mark and they let the coach go. And I was kind of, you know, itching to get back to the States. And so kind of made an exit plan to go come back to the States and play 10 games in the CBA uh, with Mike Tebow up in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, and after those 10 games, I was in the NBA for the next uh, 11 years. And so it was a great journey. I played for a lot of teams, for a lot of coaches. And it's funny, as I look over time, you know, some of the coaches I played for ended up in the minor leagues ended up being NBA coaches and some of the coaches I've crossed paths with in uh, Europe ended up coming to the States and being coaches. And, um, you know, my journey was with a lot of coaches and with a lot of teams. And um, the majority of my NBA career was in Detroit, uh, in which I spent six of my years playing, uh, two years coaching. Um, and, you know, I spent two years in Milwaukee, uh, one in Toronto, one in Indiana, you know, in Philadelphia and Washington for, you know, split split parts of a season. Uh, and so the, the journey and the coaches and everybody I came across was, was, was really good. And um, But I've always said that's, you know, my journey was, it touched a lot of places and a lot of leagues, USBL, Global Basketball League, CBA, the, the countries in Europe. Uh, but the consistent thing that, got me over the top was uh, I just I just wanted to compete in basketball and because I wanted to compete um, and I got better and you find that now if you find a guy that wants to compete or a young lady that wants to compete they are going to get better now how much better they get is going to be debatable uh, or it's going to be up in the air a lot of it depends on their athletic ability and skill set, uh, the, the skill set uh, foundation. But they are going to get better. There's no doubt about it when you're when you're a competitor. And so those are the things I kind of hung my career on, and that's kind of a snapshot of, uh, you know, kind of how my journey went. And, you know, it spanned out 15 years uh, playing, uh, two years in the management, I uh, did six years of NBA coaching and then four years of college coaching at Florida Atlantic. I mean, is there anything that you've not done, MC, like that? <laughs> <laughs> so, I, uh, I mean, that that's uh, I I love the uh, the humility of going through of just checking the box. I did it eleven years. Like that's the part I, I was. Uh, joking with uh our boy pip our mutual friend um and he was like what what are y'all gonna talk about and i was like i don't even know like i don't even want to kind of like set it up i just kind of want to let it go in so many different directions and one of the things i do want to visit about um is uh and heck we can just do it now and then we come uh, was when you retired you went to work for uh commissioner stern and um 
And like so, a little bit more backup too. So in the middle of your 11-year playing career, you also were um, president of the NBA Player Association. And correct me if I'm wrong. When, when you were selected by your peers, you were the first quote non-superstar. It had always kind of been a um, you know figurehead type position of a big guy, and that was like the respect of your players, right? So you did that, and then kind of worked through uh, through that. So you were already um, kind of that that's what you were thought of from your people but then you retire and then commissioner stern has you come on and work with with basketball operations and obviously with his his uh unfortunate passing um uh, i just thought that was one of the other reasons too to, to kind of t- talk about because he's regarded as the best kind of commissioner in sports history um but he's also notorious for i've heard stories from you when you work with and others about how tough and intense he was just talk let's just talk a little bit about uh, about uh, Commissioner Stern and just your time there with him and reflections and things maybe you learned from him that now have kind of led on to your next phase post-playing career. Well, well, I think, you know, having, you know, one of the things about my journey is I got into the NBA at a, a later age. And so by the time I got into the NBA, you know, I wanted to know, you know, hey, hold on, man, we're paying union dues. So, hey, what? What is this for? <laughs> you know, I wanted to know every single thing that we were paying dues for and, you know, okay, what's the benefits of the union and what, you know, what is, what goes on? And so at that time, um, you, know, you know, unfortunately, they, they would just pick a couple of young guys to be kind of the rep, to go to the meeting and bring back the information. You know, a lot of times players, don't think it's serious about that position until they get later in their careers, probably older, more mature, more understanding of the business aspects of basketball. And so even though I was really kind of like a rookie, a second-year guy in the NBA, I played five years of professional basketball, you know, and so I was, and, you know, I played in Europe and, you know, understanding and I think now as they see a lot of players over the you know for what David did with growing the game and sort of how many international players we have I think people begin over the last decade and a half two decades understanding you know how good of a basketball was being played in Europe and um, so I was older became part of the union uh, started experiencing you know some collective bargaining and my experience in the union, I tell people all the time, it helped me as a business guy because, uh, you know, you get into meetings and it's just like negotiations. It's unfortunate, but you have to be thick skinned and you have to, you know, understand and, and be a realist. You know, you got to be able to sit and people tell you what you're not good at. And, and a lot of guys couldn't take that. Or they have to sit and tell you that, uh, as you're going through collective bargaining, uh, you know, tell you, you know, what's at stake and, you know, what's not good with the game and what's good with the game. So I learned to really pay attention to all of that. And, um, you know, David was, you know, he was really hard with uh, how he approached it. He was stern, you know, uh, as, as, as his name uh, is. He was just as stern, you know, with, how he approached things, uh, but what I what I what I realized going through it that it was never personal and it was it was about business because I would be in a session I'd be so mad and then we'd break for lunch and then you know the owners were and the commissioner and his cabinet would be asking you about your family and what's going on in the off season and you're sitting there still mad with your fist balled up because you're in you know, uh, high-level negotiations. And you're talking the split of billions and billions of dollars. So uh, I learned to understand in, in any kind of negotiation how to look at things from the other person's perspective. It doesn't mean you have to take their perspective, but look at it from their perspective so you can understand, you know, why they take the stance that they take on issues. Uh, and then at the same time, being able to know the difference between what you need and what you want. Uh, I learned that, uh, you know, with him. I, I think his foresight was unbelievable. Uh, and what he 
saw with the game of basketball and the globalization of the game of basketball. Um, and everyone documents that and everyone talks about that. You know, the, the thing that I talk about the most, uh, and it, it's kind of twofold, uh, one, uh, sending all those meetings, I thought he was like, like one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. Uh, but that's not where it stopped. I think when you go back and look and talk about, look who he hired and who was around him. We talk about Adam Silver right now. Adam wasn't even the deputy commissioner at the time. Russ Granite was. And Russ Granite was as smart as David and as smart as Adam. <laughs> and so you had those two guys along with David, uh, you had Joe Litvin, who was the, the, the president of basketball operations. You had Rod Thorne, uh, who was a, a former player and uh, general manager and just knows everything and everything, everybody in the NBA. And you had Horace Balmer, who was over NBA security, uh, that uh, had the ability to, you know, go wherever it was to make sure players were doing what they were supposed to do. And, you know, you couldn't pull any tricks on them. So I thought that as smart as he was, uh, and I heard Colin Coward say this, you know, A's, you know, you know, A's, people that are A's in their profession, they hire A's. He said sometimes if you're a B, you hire B's or C's. And David absolutely was an A but he hired all A's around him and it made for something that when I retired and, you know, I interviewed with a couple of teams about coaching and had a chance to interview about being in basketball operation and, um, you know, with the D league, because I talked a lot about minor league basketball, you know, throughout negotiations and I had the chance to do that. And I really wanted to just, I wanted to know how, the NBA actually operated and I was intrigued by that. And so when I got there uh, and took that job, uh, those two years, I absolutely knew why the league was in the great place that it was in. And it was simply because you worked every single day. It was not a day that you didn't work and try to figure out how am I going to keep my fans happy? How am I going to make this a better game? I'm going to keep my players and owners happy and my sponsors. And when you're juggling all of those balls, it is very, very tough. Uh, and I, I think he did a great job of, of doing that. Yeah. It, it, I um, A couple things. I, I, I just remember, well, heck, one of the, one of the most uh, infamous nights, the Malice at the Palace. I remember it was at a high school game. And I think you were working that night in uh, uh, in New Jersey in the office. I just remember that going on, and just the next days following that of just the little tidbits of of just everything that went into that, all the the, the every layer of that, and then you kind of start to peel the onions back in all the other decisions when it goes to the draft, when it goes to the uniform violation, and what's the wear on the bench, and and just the whole. Um, I I love one of my other favorite things was the time when when he uh, implemented he, he got upset at a couple staffers on on making some positions or presenting something and before you could go home from work every Friday you had to like write up what was you had to like kind of com, uh, complete a write up of what uh, the next week was going to be uh, of points and had to submit it to him before you could go home right oh absolutely matter of fact you had to have it into your direct report by Thursday evening, uh, what your schedule was for the next week. And, you know, it was said that something, someone came into the NBA offices for a visit and he didn't know. And he felt that he should know and we all should know everything that was going on. And so if, uh, Danny Servick from the Atlanta Hawks is going to be in town and they're going to play the Knicks, but Danny's going to take time as the GM of the uh, Hawks 
and come by the office on that Wednesday night, Wednesday at noon or something, because they're playing there that Wednesday night. He thought it was important that everybody knows that he's in the building. Uh, and, you know, he he didn't want surprises. He wanted to know so that that, that he can greet them uh, and, you know, he makes sure that they were welcome and, and, you know, if they had any questions on something. But he wanted to make sure he at least spoke to them uh, with that. You know, another thing, he, he would come in and um, uh, he, he, would, he would just come in and he'd say, uh, did you know that video replay was used? And this is when he was really fighting to get video replay mm-hmm. used. He said, "Did you know video video replay was used in a game in Italy last night?" And it was funny that he asked the question because I and I knew that the answer and the game because on my train ride every day, and as you know, my habits every morning well, when I'm reading, I read Eurobasket every morning. And so mm-hmm. I just so happened to know it, and then he was like, "Yeah, because it'd be pretty messed up that." We're the NBA basketball ops department if we didn't know what was going on, <laughs> you know, across the world in basketball. But he did things like that that would make you um uh would, would make you just kinda always be on your toes. And so the, the the other one that was I mean this this was the one that you're talking about uh you know, having a fear factor when you're working. Some fear factors are healthy fear factors. I think you all always have to have a fear factor. Uh, you know, some people don't like the term fear factor, but the, uh, I just think that to to be successful in your job, you have to have some fear or accountability that kind of keeps you directed and focused in doing it. And so uh, I had the opportunity to fly with him um, and a couple of members of the staff from New York to Chicago for the coaches' meeting. And during that coaches' meeting, uh, we had a section in which it was going to be a presentation on the D-League. And, you know, I had prepared the presentation for it. And so I had to kind of give a run-through, kind of prep him for what was going to be in that segment. Uh, And when... We finished going over it, and he challenged you about different things. He always challenged and gives you some pushback to see what would be your response. And so we got to to uh, Chicago, and uh, we ended up having an honors meeting that night. And, I mean, he literally said everything that I said, quoted numbers and all these things that, uh, that I said about uh, the D-League at the time, which is the G-League now. And I left out of that meeting. I was like, "Wow, what if I what if I was off on something that I said?" <laughs> and so, you know, I was just like, "Oh my goodness!" And I say, "So, the accountability of what you say and do, it may, um, it just it just made for you to to work and work and and be sharp and be good at what you were doing, and you spent so much time on that." It was totally opposite of what I kind of thought went on at the league office. But for me, as a competitor, as a as a basketball guy, it was a it was a it was a great job for me because I was working in the NBA and uh, the weekends I pretty much was going in market to the uh, D League teams, and so it was a twenty four seven job. You know, my, my wife and uh, kids might not have liked that as much. Uh, but it was it was it was very fulfilling, and um, you know, it was one of one of the better two years of my professional career. Yeah, let let's follow up on that. So, you you have to take uh, great joy because one one of your first um, major initiatives when you went to work at the league office was really um, having the D League become a the. The, at, it, at that point, it's an infancy of being a true minor league system for NBA teams. You know, everyone talks about baseball and things like that. And up until that point, um, I live in Huntsville, and we had uh, the flight, but 
there was some level of association, but there wasn't really the flight weren't like the Hawks minor league team and things like that. And so I remember when you um when you first joined basketball ops and that became one of the things and it that's the interesting thing and that's why I always love hearing people's stories and their journey and how everything's kind of interconnected. And so your specific journey of playing in just about every minor league here in the States and playing overseas help, you know, provide your base, provide your foundation, provide your knowledge of what, what, what that means, what it's like to really uh, then speak. And, and then it also tying in from your years of being president of the player association to have respect from the team side, but also from the player side to, to really kind of be that bridge. So, um, I, I mean, heck I can remember us, uh, traveling up and in, 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 in connecting with you in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which would have been the, one of the very first D league showcases that they were starting to, to implement players. And I remember sitting in the hotel lobby and at the time the Celtics had just drafted Gerald green. And that was one of the first teams. I remember Danny Ainge being in there and others, and that was kind of like the the very first initial entry point into that. And of course, which we won't get into, I can also remember Sergeant Slam, but that's a whole nother story from nice. our, um, <laughs> but all all that being said, from from for you to kind of carry it from where it was to now, you know, with it being the G League and 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 seeing the two way contracts, like you have to have incredible um just joy in your heart that this was kind of your baby that you really helped kind of bring to life. Right. Yeah. yeah I, I, you know, I was always a big supporter of minor league basketball because it, it, you know, it gave me my chance and man, it was, it was, it was a lot of talent. Um, I, I, I always tell people that it was the some of the hardest, it was like one of the hardest jobs that I had because, you know, you had to, to get to the NBA, you probably had to be a guy that was carrying your team and you had to understand how to, to, to play a role. And, uh, so I, I had tremendous understanding and respect for it. Uh, and then when I, when I had the opportunity to work with the D league and, and I must say, you know, I, I got to the D league and it was a, a, a lot of great workers and a lot of people, um, uh, ended up kind of moving up, and I think Phil Evans was the president at the time. Uh, but Chris Alpert, Brandon Barnett, and Doc Martin—they lived and died with the, the, the D League basketball, and they—they they loved it. They—they they loved it. They knew every player. I mean, they knew players everywhere. Uh, and you know, to kind of find someone that thought and loved minor league basketball like I did. Uh, it made it uh, a lot of fun in trying to, you know, come up with creative things to do uh, to, to continue to grow the game. You know, we came up with the group. Um, uh, we came up with the group workouts prior to the game uh, so that everybody, you know, worked out as a team Um and so the guys will, will begin to prepare better, um, you know, the showcase and bringing all the teams to one site and, and, and having it so that they could really get scouted well right before the 10-day contract started. And I think when, uh, uh, you know, if you remember that first year in, in, um, in Fayetteville, I think Chuck Hayes might have must grabbed every rebound in yes. that tournament. Yes. Like Chuck Hayes might have had a hundred rebounds in, in about three games. It was it was like one of the most dominant things that I'd ever seen uh when it came to rebounding and you know, um and I've you know, I I played with Ben Wallace who was a fifteen rebounds a game guy. You know, but that three game stretch that Chuck Hayes had in the in the, in the, in the D League was unbelievable. And then he ended up getting called up right after that to Houston. Yeah. And so and and had a really good career and it was really proud uh and happy for him. Uh but that was you know, you know, that was like the most um remarkable thing, other than Sergeant Slam who was the first mascot that you saw that was <laughs> that was actually doing dunks during his uh 
performance. And dunking from a real dunk, not yeah, no dunking trampoline, off a trampoline, no trampoline like yeah. a, a real dunk. So and talking trash so to the players about earned it. his name. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was he was he was he was pretty good. No, that is. Um... That's so cool. It, 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 no, and, and so now, I mean, we'll sit there and kind of follow games, and it's kind of manifested and, and, and changed. And um, but all those guys, like you said, Alpert and and uh, and Brandon and and and, and Doc, and so th- those were really really cool times um, to do that. Talk, talk, and, and you yeah. know, you were you were serving as as an agent, and it was important for me, like with you and a lot of the agents to really talk to you all because we're trying to convince you all how good the league was so that um, you could send a lot of your players there. Yep. Yep. And, it, and at this time, at this time it was really tough because guys could make so much more money overseas. And so we really had to sell uh, that, um, you know, the Geese guys had a chance uh a better chance to get into the NBA. And then we had to tell the NBA teams, like, hey, if you all are not going to sign these guys to 10 days of, you know, so you was always pushing the NBA teams to sign guys out of the uh, D-League and let them know, like, hey, if this is going to be a a place where they come in here for opportunity, for NBA opportunity, they're not coming here for money. And if they don't get those opportunities, they're going to just go, make make you know make more money playing other places and so it was a really good balance uh, but it was a it was a lot of really good guys that came through and uh you know the league has grown uh we had the vision of you know one day being one to one uh you kind of thought that it should be just the one minor league system and and you know I learned from uh, David because of the NCAA and the NIT lawsuits from years ago that you can't come in and kind of form or force a monopoly. You know, you have to come in and, and just, you know, kind of operate in your space. You can't go trying to just take over other companies, uh, um, organizations, space. And if it naturally uh, morphs into that, which it has now, into where all the, you know, and where it morphed was internally where, all the teams begin to want the one-to-one relationship because they want to put their coaches in it and put their personnel, uh, support staff together so that, you know, almost like we say with junior high, I mean, like with uh, middle school football, if you got two or three middle schools that are going to feed one high school, it would be very important that they all ran the same offense and defense uh, so that, you know, those kids are better prepared coming to the high school well, sort of, that's sort of been the thought process now as other NBA teams now, they have their um, one-to-one uh, relationship with their uh, minor league team. And, you know, they don't put as much emphasis just on winning because they put it on player development. Uh, because once they get into a tournament situation, if they want to assign some players, um, then they're able to do it and the team is even better. So to watch the coaches that have gotten called up, the uh, support staff members that have gotten called up to the NBA, and the number of players um, that have actually, you know, played minutes in the uh, minor league system, uh, you know, it's, it's been really good to watch. Yeah. No, that's good stuff. Uh, let's um, segue, and 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 obviously, uh, you're you're a very smart guy. I, I like to brag on you all the time, and this was one of my favorite of your lines that I've heard you use several times with people and kind of plays. Sometimes guys will be around, and um, you've been a pro player. Like, hey, do you do you do you have a degree? Do you have your degree? And you're like, no, I have two. Uh, <laughs> your bachelor's and your master's, in which I, I I love just kind of the pride you had in that as you were playing to have both. But let's talk a little bit. We have a lot of coaches that that. Uh, that listen to the podcast and that try to take away some things that they can do and, and, and whether in different levels, high school coaches, college coaches, in terms of development and things, um, kind of being a smart guy and being a guy that is uh, coach at the NBA level, 
at, as an assistant and as a head coach, both of which uh, where you've led teams to the playoffs, uh, coaching in college, uh, where you've seen the high school. What are some things, and then obviously just your 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 makeup and your DNA as a player that when you're overseas that you led every one of those leagues in scoring, but then when you f- found your niche and your role um, in, to to have your playing career where you you're a great defensive player, and I know you, you know you take a lot of pride in in, in defense. Just some, just kind of macro type things, and this, this can be really kind of any. It can be things you've seen at the NBA. I mean, now everybody's talking about how the game has changed, or even shooting threes and layups because of analytics, versus the college all the way down to high school. Just things that you you've kind of seen here um, in in the past year, uh, and just kind of observing, and then or some some lessons that you know young coaches uh, can maybe take to be you know better serving others. Well, one of the things, uh, I was fortunate enough to start a career in Europe in 1990. And you want to talk about uh, analytics. And you, you're you a young player out of college. And what, what you don't know, and sometimes we don't realize is, a lot of times we operate and grow up in a box. Uh, and... Um, Sometimes we make all our decisions just based off of that. Uh, having to operate and be outside of the box almost from the beginning, it gave me a different perspective on the game and the, the, the growth of the game and the change in the game. And a lot of it was uh, not so much growth or change as it was individuals growing and learning more. Because one of the things you have to continue as a coach, and you know, my year out this past year, I've gone to conferences, I've done leadership uh, sort of academies and things like that to continue to better myself. Because you never, uh, you never know enough. You always got to continue to learn and continue to grow. But going back to 1990, I'm in practice and. The guy's penetrating, and he gets to the paint, and he throws it out for a three. Man, I'm like, uh, you know, 20, I'm just, I'm 21. I haven't even turned 22, I don't think. Yeah, I'm still 21 years old, and I'm like, well, wow, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my <laughs> life, you know, <laughs> that you get all the way to the paint and throw it all the way back out for a three-point shot. Uh, now, you have to understand that I didn't have a three-point line in high school, Uh the three-point line came out my freshman year, came back out my freshman year in college. So I never played with a three-point line until then. And the first week of school, we were playing pickup ball in the main gym, and the coach walked by, and uh, everybody was shooting threes. And he never let us play pickup ball in the uh, main gym. He made us play in the back gym because he, he didn't, like, we weren't getting ready. We we were inside, inside, inside team, and you know, we took outside shots based off of necessity, and so um, that's kind of how you know you you learn the game. Without the three point line, the game was so different because you know you always had the, the, the power forward down off the opposite low block uh, with the three point line. If, you know, without the three point line, as you remember. You wanted nobody to go baseline. You wanted everybody to go to the middle of the paint because then your passes were out. So if they were going to take a jumper, they were going to take a jumper further out on the court, and it still was only going to be two points. So the three-point line comes into play. Uh, I recognize how they played the game in Europe at the time. Uh, And then you go from uh, no baseline to no middle because you want to give them less options of passing it back out or at least give you time to rotate back out to the three-point shooters. You know, so they were already playing like that in Europe in 1990. Um, I had a friend of mine that I played with, uh, Bo Dukes, that had some stat sheets from 1990. And uh, at one point we played with Bo Dukes, uh, American point guard, Kai Nuremberger. We're in Germany. Kai Nuremberger was the national team point guard. He played the two. The two guard was Michael Koch, who's the national team in Germany 
two guard. He played the three. I came over as a three man. I played the four. And Tony Russ was a, a German American that played at San Diego, and he played the five, and he was six seven. So we played small ball then, or or as Dan Tony calls it, skill ball. We played skill <laughs> ball then, and he had some stat sheets where we, you know, in a forty minute game, we put up one hundred and twenty, hundred and thirty points, you know, in the, in some of those games, you know, so. Clearly, uh, some of the things that have manifested itself over the years, it's just not all new. You know, mm-hmm. It's not the first time, you know, um, you know, that things have happened and teams have played at a fast pace and, you know, you shot threes in transition and, you know, things, things like that. Uh, uh, but being out, being forced to be outside the box because I'm in another country and, you go from Germany to Belgium to Italy, France, and Spain. All of those countries play international basketball, but they all had their different flair to how the game was played. Uh, so, you know, I was kind of forced to be more of an out-of-box thinker because I was in those situations. Uh, and so, um, no, I, I learned uh, so much from that. Uh, and so what I would say, you know, a lot of times now is you have to be willing to learn. Uh, you know, a lot of, I know a lot of guys, um, I, I, it's funny to hear people say, no, I, I, don't, I don't believe in analytics. I say, yes, you do. Say, uh, no, I don't. I say, let me ask you this. Do you ever go and uh, look outside and kind of determine if you think it's going to rain and you get a raincoat or you – think it's going to be cold uh, and you, you get a coat or a jacket. Yeah, I do that all the time. I said, yeah, that's called forecasting. That's the number one thing in analytics <laughs> is forecasting. I said, so everybody does analytics. Now, you know, now it's analy- the analytics provides data and uh, information uh, to assist you. And I still think it also becomes uh, you know, people that are successful in coaching they're able to use the analytics, um, and then they're able to kind of make their decisions based off of their things that they see as well from 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 their experience. I think it's a combination of both. So uh, you absolutely got to be willing to continue to learn. You got to be willing to think out of the box. Uh, you got to be able to have great foresight. You know, you kind of see, uh, you know you know, what's happening. You know, I was in a meeting yesterday and someone said, I think in uh, 2002, maybe um, in our country, um, you know, the birth rates were low. Okay. And so uh, if the birth rates are low in 2002, that means it's going to be less kids college age in 2020. You know, because they're 18 years old, and that's the normal age that you, you know, you kind of go to college. And it will be, it's, it's by looking at that from what happened in 2002, you know, in 2020, it's going to be a bigger push and a bigger pull for, uh, you know, students to go to, go to college because you're going to have less of a pool of high school seniors than you've had in maybe some other years. And so, that's forecasting uh, because of something you knew happened before and what you predicting is going to happen uh, going forward. And you have to do that with basketball all the time. Um, you know, the other thing, you know, we talk about a lot of things within the game and you're talking to young coaches. Uh, at, the, at the end of the day, um, you have to tell uh, young people, and especially skilled young people, that being simple is good. Um, I think if you look at the NFL playoffs, which they're in the Final Four right now, uh, I think you say Tennessee, San Francisco, and Green Bay are kind of pretty simple. Uh, you know, yeah, Kansas City got a lot of flair to kind of what they do, but the reality is 75% of the Final Four teams are kind of really simple. Uh, and ultimately, 
that's that's where success is. Success is in being simple and how well can you do things and keep things simple. Um, and so, you know, I think that's, that's important. So, you know, when I see, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I love all the different drills that you do in, you know, people do in the gyms and I see kids all the time, um, doing all kinds of drills, driven with two basketballs and, dribble the ball and uh, have a tennis ball and eye-hand coordination and all that is is, is really, really good. And, you know, uh, all these different moves. And then I say, okay, now put them at 15, 18 feet and let's go 8 out of 10 on making these shots because ultimately everything comes down to being able to put the basketball in the hole. And, you know, so it's a simple thing, but – in 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 a, in a world that is so complex with everything that we do, they go back to the simple things. Hey, can you can you handle the basketball and not turn it over? Can you be solid defensively? Can you move the ball to the open guy? And can five guys on the court be offensive threats? And if you can do that, you know you can play and you can win basketball games. Yeah, that well, a, a couple thoughts came to mind on that, and, and I'd be. Uh totally remiss if I didn't bring this up. So two of my all-time favorite lines from you uh, along those lines were, uh, you, you know, you were like, hey, you know what good offense is? Scoring. Like that, <laughs> that, that, that's part one, not like are you running some complex system of ball movement and player movement and it looks pretty and everybody in the stands are like, man, this guy's an amazing coach. Uh, good, good offense is scoring. Um, and then the one that, oh, and, 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 you know, I – and I don't feel bad saying the other one. Uh, you know, I rather I rather uh, a good skill player take a bad shot than a bad skill player take a good shot. I that use that line good. every day. I'm not. <laughs> I use that line every stinking day, and uh, like it's just it's there's so much truth to that. Like it's a bad shot. No, that's not. That's a bad player. That like that's like yeah. that, just give me uh, give me my good player taking a bad shot and like. No, th- those those two lines are. Uh, I mean, I, I sit at a lot of high school and middle school games now with my boys, and that is just over and over and over and over. And so, uh, I I love everything about that when we talk about. It. And then the other the other part though that came to mind, which so like last year, you know, we went on our little uh, barnstorming tour through uh, a lot of uh, conference tournaments. And it was interesting because we kind of tiered up. You know, we, we, we started in the SOCON, then we were a Colonial, then we were the ACC. And the one thing that was in kind of seeing whatever it was, 20-something games in those five days, was like if the, the good teams have people who can score. <laughs> like, it, they're, they're not, it's not necessarily, all right, this is my one, my two, my three. Like, you, and like if you had less than four scores, you weren't you weren't getting to the final two days of the conference tournament to win. And only at this the the super high level did you have the existence of the um, really athletic wing who can't score. Um, but even in those leagues, the ones that had the really athletic, they were also skilled who could score. Like skill is such a premium. Um, and, and, and to me, and, and I know we talk about this all the time, that has nothing to do with whether it's three is greater than two and points per possession and all that stuff. It's just can you score? Are you skilled? Can right. you, can you handle the ball to drive to kick to someone who can score? And you, can you know? And like if you don't have, like the, the, at the end of the day, all the training, all that you got to be able to shoot the basketball. Right. Yeah. So we we were in the uh, Southern Conference and we watching Wolford, and 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 we're saying. Yeah, yeah. They got five guys that can dribble, pass, shoot. So they're going to beat somebody. And, yes. and you know, I, I'm not mistaken. Did, did they come close, or did they beat somebody in the tournament last year? They came close. No, they, they no, they won, close. and then they and then they almost won the second game, right? Yeah. Okay. And, and you saw that while we were, you know, while we were at their semifinals or their uh, quarterfinal game. You just said, hey, they're winning because they got five guys on the court and. You know, with me being a a, a, a defensive guy, uh, as soon as I see things, I, I, I kind of see them from a defensive standpoint instead of offense. 
And the first thing that I learned this year being out is that, you know, I spent a lot of time in the summer and you know, spring workouts and summer workouts uh, with my team on defense and defensive concepts. I said, nah, you know, one, one, of, one of my corrections would be spend all spring and summer on skill development and, and offense. Like, just hey, defensively go out there and play hard and find a way to try to get stops. Because the reality is you can put defensive concepts, if, if your guys play hard, you can put defensive concepts in every week, you know, based on your opponents. But can you find a way to score? Mm-hmm. And my teams, one of the things that I haven't done well is, you know, I needed to hire a great offensive mind, uh, and a mind of someone that's different than, than kind of mine is, and spend more, way, 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 way more time on skill development and, and, and offense because, you know, you just can't win enough consistently uh, with slugfest. Now, I say that, and Virginia won the uh, national title, and they they were unbelievable. But what they, they what they did have is they still had, uh, you know, they as soon as they got down against Garner Webb last year, uh, they dropped that five man and moved the four to the five and added a skilled player, and. They went through most of the playoffs that way. Uh, they had guys that were uh, able to make some more, some timely shots, uh, but they 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 went from their traditional two bigs a lot through the NCAA tournament, especially the first part when you're playing maybe a mid major who who probably really have one big true big on their roster, and the rest are, are, are wings that. Um, weren't good enough at the guard position or not big enough to play the big. <clears throat> and, and, you know, so that's where the majority of your guys lie. Uh, so, you know, the decade, decade and a half ago, you know, you could, you could pitch defensive shutouts. You can't do it now because everyone is utilizing the three-point line so much better. Uh, but if, if you watch the scoring, the teams that score – they don't just shoot a lot of threes. They 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 uh, open the game up with you with the threes, but they get to the free throw line, and and, and they get get points in the paint. Mm-hmm. No, well that that on on my list of favorite lines that continue to pop through my head, of course, our our, our dear friend Bruno from Cantu in Italy, um, yes. as he. <laughs> Famously said about one of the uh, my players that I represented uh, years ago when I was pitching him for his team, and it's just like ah, Danny, he just doesn't have enough points in his hands, and yeah. <laughs> which is the- yeah, that's that's one of the quotes <laughs> where you wish you you had came up with that. Yes. Like I was like ah, I wish I, I wish I owned that. Oh, one. that was so uh, cold. Yeah, like true. that that one is just yeah. like ah, he doesn't have enough points in his hands, and it's like uh, such a nice way to be like ah, he's just not quite good enough. He's just yeah, like- he can't do. He still don't have enough points in his hands. And it's the summer league, and this guy's playing well. And he said, oh, he plays well every summer. Maybe he needs to go to Australia. <laughs> because the Australian league is in the summertime. <laughs> oh, that was, no, that was so – yeah, he, uh, he he would probably be a good one to have on. Hey, let me – I know uh, we're, we're up against our time, but uh, one thing I like to do kind of each week too for – in addition to coaches, parents, listen, we, we kind of have our little thing we call our three-point shot, which we've obviously talked about a lot of keys, but it doesn't have to be a specific basketball skill thing. It can be kind of a very uh, macro theme philosophy. But what are like, if you're speaking more to parents now, um, you know, th- you know, three things to kind of, or this can be for coaches too, three things to kind of like are, are kind of like pillars for you um, in trying to instill and really emphasize uh, with, their, with their own kids or their players. Oh, well, you know, it's so much, um, you know, with the kids um, and 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 the, and the parents, and um, you you're finding now that um, you know so many of them, you know, you're dealing with that. Coaches are dealing with that every day, and and, and you know whether they win or lose. And it's a great little clip that um, Eric Musselman had 
I saw that. Or why he yes. basically, yes. yeah, why he basically just have nine guys in uniform because he got so tired of, uh, well, he got so tired of guys and their parents and coaches and everybody involved being upset whether they won or lost based off of how much they played. Uh, and so, you know, we, I have a lot of things when it comes to that, you know, but, you know, the first thing with, with to me is that, um, uh, you know, let the young person uh, develop a love for the game and a, and a love to compete, you know, because as I said earlier, uh, the love for the game and the love to compete, that, that, that person is going to get better. How much better doesn't, you don't know, but they are going to get better when they have those two things. Um, the, the, the next thing is um, uh, allowing them to allowing them to be coached um, and allowing them to um, you know, to, to, to have some failures. You know, um, you know. Sometimes we don't want our young people to have failures. You know, they 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 take the jump rope out of school and, and you exercise with an imaginary rope so that you never miss. <laughs> You know, but it, it is still something to missing or, or having some failures uh, because, you know, it's going to do one or two things. It's either going to make you better or it's going to uh, crush you. Either way, it's going to identify an area of strength or area that you're going to need, um, you're going to need, you know, some help in. And I've always said, you know, when, when, when you know, one of my things is that, you know, I ask people, I say, are you afraid? I say, man, you're afraid to be successful. Oh, no. No one's afraid to be successful. Yeah, if you're afraid to fail, then you're afraid to be successful. Because to be successful, you know you got to fail. Uh, and 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 so it's just a back way of saying, you know, having some failures or having some setbacks is okay. Um, and then, you know, as you, I'm just, I'm just big on, you know, Finding, finding whatever you have to do to play whatever role that is directed of you to play uh, to be successful. And whether you feel you could do more than your role, um, that's, that's okay. But I promise you, you get into the real world, you get into other businesses, you're going to work, and it's probably going to have a job at some point that you can do a little bit more than what they're asking you to do. But in the real world, if you don't do what they're asking you to do, you will not keep that job long. <laughs> and, um, and and so um, I like to take sports, and, and even though everyone separates it, I like to take sports and compare it a lot to the real world because I think if you treat it, you know, like I think if you treat, playing professional sports like you're working in corporate America or you're going to have a long career. Yeah, no, you know, that is... If you treat it like you had the recreation department, like like some athletes have, then then you're going to probably have a shorter career and probably uh, one of those careers where people felt that you underachieved. Yeah. Well, you obviously took the, uh, the, the, the 15 years... Um, of your playing career, of of learning that and beyond, and so I think that's a great a great ending point uh, to 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 the episode. And um, yeah, like I said, like I I'm sitting here kind of racking my brain through any other kind of great little tidbits of stuff. But like, we'll we'll have to have um another another time. Maybe we get more into the playoffs and we can talk a little bit more kind of specific or March Madness, but. I wanted to just, like I said, since this podcast would not exist if it wasn't back for uh, when we crossed paths back in 2002 uh, and then of all the years that's kind of gone in between. So to try to condense some of that down into an hour to, to share with friends uh, means the world to me to uh, to have and, and, and look forward to people hopefully getting some stuff out of this because there's so much great nuggets um, in this uh, to help them kind of carry forward. So... Um, and, and, and I'm also very thankful that, 
when we're talking about analytics and how people use it that we just did not bring up how terrible our our Cleveland Browns are trying to use it. So it's best to that was that was a joy. Yeah. Hey, hey, listen, you got Stefanski, and if he hires a good staff, uh, uh, you know, then then things are things are going to be things are going to be much better. Uh, and I tell you what, you know, maybe we, you know, once Sam and Jack season's over and you get a little time, maybe we can do a, a seven-day road trip of games and podcasts each day kind of, you know. Yeah, I'm all – I love world. that idea. Let's just make yeah. sure uh, we pick uh, a couple of our hotels a little better. Yeah, um. yeah, yeah. Listen, <laughs> hey, let's hey, let's <laughs> – <laughs> let's stay off the sale page and just go with a. Hey, let's just pick the Hilton and yes. just stick with it. I mean, let's 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 not go on the sale page. No. Not, let's not look on, yeah. uh, you know, orbits and and see. Oh man, we got a fifty nine ninety nine special for tonight, and the pictures look really good. And yeah, you get someone down there fighting over the tax for the uh, room. No, no, that. Uh, and then, uh, then we don't have to like roll up uh, towels and put them under the door to try to keep any kind of potential smoke coming into the into the yeah, room. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm, I am all in on that. So, uh, MC, I really, really appreciate it. And uh, man, I, I can't wait till uh, we do this again, my man. All right, man. All right, I'll talk soon. All right, take care. Thanks for listening to another edition of Pro and Dialogue. I hope you guys enjoyed the visit with the great Michael Curry. Uh, I know I, uh, as I do every time I talk with him, uh, came away with something new uh, that will help me, uh, and hopefully you guys did as well too. Uh, if you don't subscribe to uh, to the pod yet, please go do so. Um, Pro and Dialogue is available wherever you get your podcast at Apple Podcasts, Uh, Spotify, Google Play, Podbean. Uh, Go subscribe. Go back and listen to previous episodes and and, and do a deep dive. And uh, be ready to to, to jump on to the next one uh, when we see you next week.